And always we speak about kashrus. So a big part of kashrus is what the Torah tells us, specifically by the mitzvahs of kashrus, and not necessarily much by other mitzvahs. It says, "Tell Bnei Yisrael v'amartalem." Tell Bnei Yisrael, and you should tell them. Why does it say it twice? So Chazal tell us. You're telling Moshe, you're telling the adults of Klai Yisrael the Mitzvah, you're telling them to tell others. And who the others they have to tell, we're already addressing the entire adult population. And the answer is no. We're telling the adults to tell their children. That the adults should warn their children. Advise their children to eat about kashrus, about what to eat. Now this is something which we don't find in the other mitzvahs of the Torah. There's <coughs> a deal of chinuch generally for someone to train their children to keep the mitzvahs. But then it's in the context of we always explain chinuch, and that is it's in the context so that when the child grows up they'll know what to do. But really, as a child they don't have zochiv. The khiyab is to get used to what I need to do so they'll be able to do it as an adult. Kashrus is different. Yeah, that's what the Pasuk says. Over here there's a khiyab on the adults to teach the child. To make sure the child eats kosher. Not just that he'll know what to do when he's an adult, but even as a child. And why is that? Because when it comes to Averis or Mitzvahs, that is obeying or disobeying Hashem, so of course, Hashem is only speaking to somebody who is able to understand. And a child who doesn't yet have their full das, so the Mitzvah as a tzivui, as an instruction, doesn't yet apply to. But Kashrus is in effect. Kashrus is the result that eating non-kashrus is going to have on the person. Like the Pasuk says when it talks about kashas, it says, when it's mason bomb, you're going to make yourself tummy by eating it. Or when it's bomb, you're going to make yourself, you're going to corrupt yourself, your nefesh, your midas, by eating non kosher. That's a consequence. Would apply to a child too. And therefore, we want to ensure that we're not damaging our children. We're not allowing them to damage themselves. And therefore, when it comes to kashras, we have to be careful with our children because eating non-kashras is going to cause them damage. And there's no excuse, well, they're just a baby, they're just a little kid, let them eat what they want. If it was poison, we wouldn't think like that. We have to protect them, even though they don't understand what they're doing. We understand the ramifications of eating something which is which is bad for you. The same thing applies to kashrus. The hazarak dorim laktanim isn't just chinuch. It's we understand that something non kosher is poison for a person. It's going to ruin the neshama. It's going to corrupt them. And therefore, as even as children, we have to make sure that they don't eat rice. The Salakha goes so far. The Balakha is 
one can't give a Jewish baby to a non-Jewish lady to his nurse. Even though human milk isn't tray. But since the non-Jew was, has eaten non-kosher food, and we know that the food that the lady eats is broken down to create the milk for the baby, and if that's the case, by a non-Jew who had eaten non-kosher, the milk that's being produced is sourced in a non-kosher origin. And if that's the case, it's going to affect the baby who drinks it. Not because he tries to do something wrong. He's a baby who doesn't understand anything. But that's the effect of non-kosher. Why? Because if what a person eats becomes a part of them. And therefore, if there's a certain element in a person, on the physical sense and for sure in the spiritual sense, which is non-kosher, so then there's something internally, so to speak, corrupted in them. We learned this information about Moshe. When Moshe was found as a three-month-old baby in, in the Nile River, Sapphira's daughter Basia tried to use Egyptian woman to nurse him and he refused. Because that would have Im- Im- impacted on his ability to later learn Torah. And like the Shach says in Yeridea, that now becomes something which Every Jewish child has to be careful of. Not even Zemayish Rabbeinu. But it doesn't make a difference. Because anybody's ability to learn Torah is going to be adversely affected if as a baby they drank milk which came from a non-kosher source. So here we see the importance of protecting our children from trafficking. Ramzalman Saratskin writes in his name the Torah. It's not his Chiddush, but he explains it very nicely. And that is why the Chiva for eating non kosher is different to the Chiva for other Averis. Because for other Averis, what we see as being wrong was the fact that a person didn't obey Hashem. And the remorse that a person expresses in the video and the resolve to obey Hashem in the future is called Chiva. Whereas when it comes to non-kosher, it's not just the action, it's the effect. And the effect remains with the person for what they ate long after they've eaten. And therefore he brings the passage where it says in the future, the passage says in Yeshaya, Those who have defiled themselves by eating the chazir and the mouse, and other kinds of abominations with the Torah calls. So in the future they'll be destroyed. As Raskin explains, because of other Averis, as soon as people get the feeling Mashiach is about to come, so of course, who's not going to do Tshuva? And therefore for other Averis, there'll be the possibility of Klai Yisrael doing Tshuva and being re-accepted within the ranks of Klai Yisrael. But for people who have eaten non-kosher, it's not enough to the chiv. The chiv, the treif is still a part of them. And therefore, they won't be able to the chiv in time. So that's the importance 
there is to making sure I should know so. I only ever given food to eat of a cautious of a level we trust. Now, as a chiluch bad, I want to talk about this in a more practical sense. Because, of course, none of us would knowingly allow our children to do something, to eat something, which we wouldn't allow ourselves to eat. Of course, all of us know that we're not going to justify the fact that they're just children in order to give them non-culture. But there's some very practical examples I want to share. The first one is, here in Eretz Israel, when we live in a Haredi environment, and our connection and people around us are all Haredi, so we naturally assume everything's kosher. The stores which are catering to that clientele, of course, they only stuck in kosher, which people are going to eat. And therefore, whereas in Chutzlar it's maybe, when a person's buying food in a store, which they know may rush, they know up front, that a majority of the items are real trash. So people accustom themselves to checking every product to make sure it has a heksha. In Eretz Israel, sometimes it's taken for granted. People assume it's kosher and buy it. And then only after start to think, one second, was there a heksha, wasn't there a heksha, which heksha? Then we're just coming through Pesach. Probably one of, the, one of the most common questions I've got over the last two weeks was, I bought this from the store and I, and I just realized it doesn't have a kosher Pesach sticker or it doesn't have a good heksha for Pesach. And it comes from a person not getting, not being used to checking things when they buy them. They assume it must be, it's kosher, it must be, it's good. Everywhere in the store I'm buying this is, is already like I am. And therefore that's the first point. If we get used to checking item by item, to make sure that the heksha is really a good heksha. And on the topic, in Eretz Yisrael, there's another problem also. That is, people generally buy things they recognize. They recognize the brand, they recognize the packaging. Well, one has to be aware that in Eretz Yisrael it's not so simple. Why? Because here in Eretz Yisrael, the same factories could have a number of different production lines. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they've paid for the same heksha on all their lines. Sometimes they're even different factories altogether. And therefore, even though they haven't changed the, the brand, the label, it's the same packaging, but sometimes that packaging will have a heksha and sometimes it won't, depending which factory is produced in, depending which line it was. And therefore, even well-known brands, like the Snova Milk, Elite chocolate, ozone products, whatever it's going to be. One recognizes the product and thinks, sure, I know that product, it has a good heksha. Well, there are those products within that range that have a heksha, but there are also those which don't. Especially if a person's traveling out of the major prim centers, they're going on a trip, and they go into the local store, and they recognize the brand, they recognize the packaging. Don't assume it's kosher because it's the same packaging and the same brand that you use back home. Most companies have more than one line and they only pay for a good kosher on the one which is going to be marketed in the from areas. 
train your children to do the same. And therefore, even if maybe you're not the one giving them food, but they're getting food on their own, so if they're used to looking for the hechsha before they eat, it can prevent many, many mistakes happening. And just like a person can make mistakes, other people make mistakes too. And it might be the friend in Gan, it might be the neighbor who's giving out candy, who's giving out chocolates, whatever it might be. They could also make mistakes. They could also have bought the item which doesn't have a hashtag. If children are, known, are taught and they know, before I eat, I have to check as a hashtag. If I don't know the hashtag, I have to go and ask. They can serve, it's a way to prevent them causing themselves the damage which would otherwise be the case for a person eating non kosher food. Another point, and that is, don't assume a hechsha is a good hechsha. Even if I check the packaging and I find the certification of it, I find the same with kosher. But if I don't recognize the authority who's giving it the label, who's giving it the kashras, it doesn't mean very much. You don't assume that most people saying things are kosher are necessarily kosher and definitely not to a standard which one would want to rely on. But it's even more than that. I've learned from experience and can't even be sure that the organizations always exist. Unfortunately, there are enough cases, I know about personally, of, so to speak, of kosher agencies whose symbol or whose name appears on various uh, products or even various restaurants and these organizations don't exist. For example, I've seen places endorsed by the the rabbi of Palma, Mallorca in Spain. I've seen products under the Hersh of the Basin of Latvia. Something under the auspices of the chief rabbi of Albania. None of these things exist. I went to check with a friend of mine in the European Basin. There is no rabbinate of Tom Mallorca. There's no Basin in Latvia today. These are just dishonest ways of trying to fool the public who don't know better. And even in Eretz Yisrael we have that. I've seen signs in stores that they under the hashkocha of the Basin are Godel of Chassidei and a very ornate certificate, nicely framed. There's no such thing as a base Nagod of Chassidei Rapshitz. One has to train oneself and one's children to check kashas. But the way to do that is to first understand the importance of kashas. And the importance of kashas is to eat something not kosher is like eating something poisonous. And therefore, a person always makes sure before he eats. So what he wants to eat is something that he's allowed to eat. As a chinuch point, a child who does come and ask, can they eat the candy they were given in Gan? Can they eat something that their neighbor gave them? And for whatever reason, one doesn't trust the hechsha. And it's not good enough. Always make sure to reward the child with something that you can give him which is a good hechsha. You should never have the feeling that I lost out because I asked. 
I could have had the candy, I could have had the chocolate. But because I asked, now I was told no. Next, uh, he was feeling he gets it next time better than ask. If you're going to ask, you're going to forbid him from eating something which you came to ask about, always make it worthwhile for him. You can't eat that candy, but I'll give you something better. You can't eat the cake from his house, but I'll give you some cake from my house, which is nicer. The feeling of that it was worthwhile asking. It was worthwhile asking for an adult is that I realize the severity of doing something wrong. For a child, it doesn't appreciate that yet. So it's just a question of, did I get to eat the food or didn't I? And if that's the case, it's always worthwhile ensuring that you're giving him an alternative. You should never feel he lost that by asking and doing the right thing. You want to encourage them to ask. That's the first, the main point I wanted to talk about. But there's a second point too. And I very much was hesitant to bring this up. But something which, it's a feeling I have, something which disturbs me. So I'm going to share it with you, not as a halakha, but just as a feeling. And that is a lot of times, we're not talking about the person who's awake to checking what they're eating or coming to ask a shayla. Let's talk about the person, the rabbi is passing the shayla. So if he's somebody who's learned Derrida, who's learned Hilkas Kashrus, not just the Shulchan Aruch, but he's learned the Pishchei Tshuva, he's learned the various Achronim, he'll see that very often the trend of the Achronim was to look to be Mekel. If perhaps it's a Shita Tzeran to be Mekel, or maybe it's Bottle, or maybe it's time of gum, it's giving a bad flavor, or whatever other options there could be, to try and look for a way to be making. And therefore a person would think that the way that to approach Kashrus and Shaidas is to, to try and find a way to be making. Now I'm not saying there's no place for that. But there's one feeling I want to add. And that is the situation of most people in the times of the Akronim is they didn't have a lot to eat. And therefore, when it came a question of kashrus, it was, if it's not kosher, I'm going to go hungry. And therefore, when it came to the food they had, so we have stories of people who were in Europe and spoke about they found a vegetable or fruit which started going moldy. So they would cut off the moldy part and eat the rest. And if bread had gone stale, they would eat stale bread. That was the food. There's no idea of throwing out food. There was no idea of extra food. There's no concept of not eating something because it wasn't fresh or because it was stale. There wasn't anything else to eat. And if that's the case, so then of course, a question of Cassius was dealt with with a tremendous severity. Because if you're going to be machmer on somebody and tell them the food is they're going to go hungry. 
So that's the mindset that there is to food. That was the economic situation of the time. One can understand where the person were coming from. To look to find ways to be matter. But today that's Baruch Hashem, not the world we live in. And it's not the lifestyle we were accustomed to. And today most people don't want to eat leftovers. They're just going to throw them away. And if food's a day old or two days old, it's considered old, it's stale. Who eats stale bread today? Who eats yesterday's leftovers? I'm not saying one shouldn't. But if the man said is, whatever's left over gets thrown out. And whatever's stale gets thrown out. And whatever is, isn't, doesn't come out just the way you want it to when you cook it gets thrown out. So when it comes to shiners and kashras, why are we looking so much more to be maker? <coughs> why shouldn't the same spiral apply? If the taste isn't exactly the way I like it, I'm going to throw it away and not eat it. Then if there's a question, then there is a shit that holds that this isn't meant to be eaten. Now, why should it be more makele there? Now, once again, of course, there's a concept of Hafsid Meriba today too. And of course, there'll be situations such as Shabbos where a person can't make more food. And therefore, it'll be a question of either, you may, if it's not mutter for him, he's not going to have what to eat, oh, for sure. But what I'm saying is just the mindset of kashas. And that is the mindset a person's prepared to eat anything edible because there wasn't enough food to go around. So if that's the case, I can look at kashras the same way. If there's any way to be matter it, we, we can't do that to somebody to take away his food. But if the mindset of food is there's so much and I'll have exactly what I like and anything which isn't perfect I'm not going to touch. It's slightly underdone, it's slightly burnt, it's slightly whatever, I'm not going to touch it. So then shouldn't our attitude to kashras be the same? Anything is any shy about. It's not perfect. It's not just the way it should be. I should be that much more careful to avoid. But again, it's not a psak, it's just a hargasha. But it comes from the same place. And that is the importance we give to kashas. How much we see it really as being something that if it's not good, it's something we want to avoid. How much we see it as something which if it's not kosher, so then it's the end of the world. And they famously said the story that after the Chafetz Chaim died, they measured this Kiddush cup. And they saw that it was the smallest share of a revis. Of course, one could wonder. Chafetz Chaim wouldn't be machmer in a big share of for Kiddush. And the answer is, the Chafetz Chaim didn't have more wine than that. And therefore, it's better to have a small share in a full cup than have a bigger cup and not be able to fill it. That was that, re- that was the reality of life then. Today, when everything's in abundance, so of course we'll tell people have the biggest share. Why not? You, you have so much. And like I said, that mindset of if we can e- make sure that what we eat is more in physical terms, in quality terms, so then for sure we can be more macro and cashless too. Anyway, that's just a side point. Let's go back to the point I was discussing. The importance of kashas in our children. I'm going to finish with one more story. A few months ago, there was someone here in the neighborhood who was making a kiddush. And for every reason, of course, I went to wish him But I had reason to suspect that the kashas wasn't something which was the one of the kashas's one of those uh, symbols which B'nai Torah would be happy to eat. 
So that the Kedish Mishmaratov spoke a bit, but uh, didn't touch the food. There's no Avrich there, enough from the neighborhood. Came, he sat down, saw a big bowl of chalent, started helping himself. So I just leaned over to him and said, Did you check the kashos? So I said, No. So I said, Well, how do you know it's good? You know, this isn't a stomach cake, you're eating meat. How do you know it's a good kashos? So he didn't know what to answer me. He looked over and smelled the chalent and said, Ah. He said, No, there must be kosher. It smells so good. That would be a good example of how the Yetzirah can influence somebody. Why must it be kosher? It smells so good means I'm so tempted to eat it. Well, he did. And I actually found out afterwards that it wasn't a good action. Something else to be careful of. And that is, of course, there's always a temptation for food. Especially when the food is hot and inviting and ready in front of you. And the amount that a person gives importance to kashrus is how much they're going to look at the food and think, well, it's probably okay. It's probably okay. And allow themselves to eat it. Or how much they look at it as being, no, it, it could be there's something wrong. And if I have any doubt that there's something bad about the food, I'm not going to touch it. If I had a chashash that the food had spoiled, as inviting as it looks, I wouldn't touch it. If I had a chashash that had been on somebody else's plate and he had licked it and put it back, I wouldn't touch it. There are certain things which as inviting as the food looks, it's, it's, it's off-putting enough to me. That will resist the temptation to eat. Kashra should be in the same category. If I get used to thinking of kashra as something which is that important, and that if it's not kosher, that's something which is something poisonous. So then that gives me the the right perspective on looking at things suspiciously. And that, that if I'm not sure it's good, I'm going to make sure not to eat. If we can impart that to our children too. A healthy suspicion. Before I eat anything, to make sure, is it really kosher? Did I see the kashras? Then we've done our job of emravamart, of ensuring that our children also are going to make sure not to ruin themselves by eating something which is going to be physically or spiritually harmful. One more point. I want to share with you a story. A story of the Ivets. He lived at a time about a hundred years after the expulsion from Spain. And at that time there were still many Jews trapped in Spain who were hiding their Jewish identity, living outwardly as Christians, while inwardly keeping the mitzvahs as best they could. And of course, these Jews who were forced to live a double life, whenever they had the chance, used to look for ways to flee Spain and make it to safer shores. The story goes about two refugees, escapees if one wants, left Spain, they were in a boat at sea, and the boat involved in the shipwreck, the storm, and the two of them swam for the shore. They made it to dry land, cold, 
freezing hungry very weak from the ordeal at sea so when they drag themselves up on the land they have no choice but to start knocking on doors to ask to ask if anyone is willing to host them give them food give them warmth give them shelter and each of these two men was lucky enough to find a home in that place where they had landed they had been washed ashore as long as they take them in for a few days give them a chance to recover to rest give them food to eat the story is that by one of them after a few days when he felt strong enough to continue his journey he thanked his host profusely and the host pulled him aside and said by the way I was watching you while you were in my house the last few days and I could see that undercover that you're Jewish so I just wanted to share with you a secret I'm also Jewish and all the meat I gave to eat you was kosher I'll show you my shchitzen knife you don't have to worry that you were forced to eat something on kosher here everything you ate was kosher and of course the man was overjoyed he had felt that he was in a situation where he had no choice but to eat. But now to hear that everything he ate was actually kosher, he was exuberant. He meets up with his friend, who had also found refuge in a home in the village. He had also been looked after one of the people there. And he tells him the story. And the second person, who had been hosted by a non-Jew, and been given non-kosher to eat, he was cursed for him. Why did my friend deserve this tremendous yatadishmaya? That the random people who took him in happened to be mitzvah-observing Jews, and he was spared from eating treif, and I wasn't zeichot to that. So the two of them went to the Yavits to tell them the story. And the Yavits turns to the first man and says, tell me something. Have you ever knowingly eaten treif in your life? And the man says, never. Even though I'd been in Spain, and it was very hard sometimes to make sure not to eat whatever everyone else was eating, I was always makbid. Never to let anything into my mouth that I didn't know was kosher. And the Ivor sends the second man, and he asks him, tell me something, did you ever knowingly eat something which you knew was non-kosher? The man thought about it and he said, yes, I have to admit. He said, one time I was with a group of friends back in Spain, all non-Jews, and they took out food, they started to eat. And I was worried that if I refused to eat with them, they would start to suspect I was Jewish, so I joined the meal. See, I said, that's the answer. So a person is always careful to protect themselves from non-kosher, there's a special siyat of Hashem will protect them too. But a person for themselves hasn't taken the maximum precautions. So they aren't zechut that's yet Really, I think this is a pshat in the Tesis. The Gemara says that Hashem protected Tzadikim. They're not going to eat something that's also to eat. And Tesis asks, we find stories in Shas. Of Amarayim of Shalom who did a various, by mistake, but they did things wrong. And sometimes even serious things wrong. And we don't have this rule that Hashem protects them from doing a virus. 
Why is it that when it comes to kashas, there's such a principle? Taisa says kashas is different, but now we understand. A person that does the maximum to prevent themselves eating something not kosher. Hashem will protect them. Why? Because since the effect of, of kashas isn't just that very, and if a person was a oinus or a shaking, it's not so bad. But the effect of not eating non kosher is that it damages a person. So for a tzaddik who's always careful not to inflict that spiritual damage on themselves, they can rely on Hashem to protect them. That they're not going to get harmed. But a person who isn't always careful for himself, so that guarantee doesn't apply. And therefore, it's true we can't always be on top of every situation. But we can take confidence, encouragement from the fact of this principle. That as much as it's possible for us to always be careful of what we do, we can rely on the Siyatah Dishmai that Hashem will protect us from eating anything which is going to compromise or corrupt our spirituality. And the same for our children.